well, maybe we did. I, I certainly don't remember. <laughs> you weren't the ones that. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You're, you're going to go well, to your paper. Constructivism yeah. by Timothy Carson. <laughs> right. What was that again? Do you remember? I find that I, I almost want to challenge it a bit in the sense that yeah, I agree that, you know, typically and traditionally, the learner is dependent on the instructor in a pedagogical sense. And then andragogical, we, we tend to think of the learner as self-directed. And shouldn't it be our job as educators to facilitate? And I love how you're saying the, the, the content to the context. That librarians are in the middle of that, what you described, the middle of that, that no man's land or no person's land. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. In fact, this is episode 16. And if you're tracking along with us, this is number five in the December special series. Anyways, Chad and I sit down and we discuss, debate, dialogue about pedagogy versus andragogy. and that you can take those points and connect them, which is why that other podcast that you and I love, that Pedagogzilla, why we, I think we love it so much is that they're, they're taking these complex theories and then they're actually taking them and they're tying them into pop culture references, yep. which is my jam. But then it, it just makes it seem like, yeah, you know what? There's some real meat in these theories. It's not just mm-hmm. stuff that we had to, like when we did our PID, it was all stuff that we just had to read through, right? And then we'd write a paper about it and then you'd never think about it again. And yeah, a lot of the yeah, co-workers yeah. and colleagues, you you mentioned constructivism to them. They studied it. They probably wrote a paper on it. And now they have no idea what you're talking about. Well, yeah, because there's no context applied to it, right? And so like yeah. when I did my ID program, we didn't even talk about pedagogy, right? That, that really? wasn't, yeah, that wasn't, uh, well, maybe we did. I, I certainly don't remember. <laughs> you weren't the ones that. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You're going to go well, to your paper prisoners like constructivism yeah. by Timothy Carson. <laughs> right. What was that again? No, but I, I mean, I, I took that whole thing pretty seriously, although I, I, yeah, oh, yeah. my way through it because I had to get it done in, in a short period of time. But I, t- I took that whole thing seriously. And I don't remember specifically talking about pedagogy because that, that would stick out to me. What I do remember right. is there was a lot of emphasis on, on the lesson plan and there was a lot of emphasis on, uh, the structure of, of what you're going to do. And there's a lot of emphasis on different methods into the, into the brain or different methods of teaching um, the content, not, not different methods of, you know, pedagogical practice is so much, well, I guess they're two the same, they're two the same thing, but um, yeah. So, and, but later on, like probably about five years ago uh, or, you know, five or six years into my career, I started thinking like, why, why are we not looking more down the road of doing some professional development around this pedagogical thing? And, and I wasn't calling it yeah. pedagogy then. I was just calling it practice. Like, yeah, because we, teaching practice. exactly. And, and so, you know, we got this ID thing and, and, you know, the provincial instructor's diploma is, is it's an important piece of, of, of training and it's an important document and, a, and an exercise for us to go through. But if it's not taken seriously, it's just a stepping stone. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Most people are looking at it for one to get it so they can get a teaching job or two, they're looking to get it because they're frozen at a pay rate and they want to get unfrozen. They want to get to the top. Right. And so, um, 
I, I think it's I think it's super important for instructors to to really dive into this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, the, the whole thing about about um, what is open to me, I'm not sure I'm I've landed anywhere other than what I've just said in the sense that it's about licenses and basically about what I can and can't do or what somebody else can and can't do. Right. Right. And then how do I make my practice better? And so right. for me that it, when I, when I leave it at those two fundamental things, it, it, it works really well. And maybe, maybe I don't need to make it complicated. I do, I do feel that librarians are in the middle of that, what you described the middle of that, that no man's land or no person's yeah. land between the academic world and those who just want to be practitioners and they don't really care about the research and, and what the papers say. Yep. And, and I feel like, cause we know a few librarians who are up to their eyeballs in OER and, yep. and they, they're kind of caught in the middle between the two groups in the sense that, you know, they're exposed to all the research, they have access to it all. And they're trying to make it relevant for those who are, you know, practicing their craft. Yeah. And then they're also trying to communicate to the academic side that there are people practicing this stuff already, and maybe we should get the two groups together. So I look at people like Jessica Norman, uh, Lynn uh, Brander, and, and Rosario, um, and even people like, um, oh gosh, I, I want to say four or five more names, but they're, they're all slipping my mind now. But you know, I see all this whole group of people as as quote unquote OER librarians who stand in the gap between. The, the white tower and, and you know, the, the, the street, so to speak. And, you know, I think if there's any, if there's any unsung hero in any, in this whole story, it's the OER librarian, right? Well, I don't think I, until I actually started getting into OER and honestly, it was Lynn Brander, who's the OER librarian at BCIT where I work or where we work. She's the one that really opened up, open to me, mm -hmm. which is and the fact that she she saw that what I was doing with some of my videos and she gave me a phone call basically and said, hey, you need to come and talk to me about what you're doing there because I think you're onto this philosophy that you might not understand. And so I, through my master's and through her is what I really got into it. And then you start learning, like when you start meeting people like her and Jessica, like there's such a powerful resource there that people don't understand working at these institutions. Typically, I know for us tradespeople, the library is not an area where you're thinking that there's any resources there for you. So to go and actually understand that these librarians are not just checking out books for you, but they're an actual resource there for you is, is just mind blowing. And so I just encourage anybody listening to this who doesn't, who has not yet tapped into their library, go and talk to your librarians because wow, they've got so much, so much that they can give and so much they can help out with and they want to. That's what, the, that's why they got into it. They're, giving open people you don't for the ones I've met anyways they're not very close-minded they're there to help yeah and and it reminds me of that episode from Terry Green I don't know if you listened to it but it she is uh she was the keynote at uh Tess 19 and um and uh she is an anthropologist by training and then she moved into the library and you know that that's a, that's a brilliant move to have a social social socio anthropologist 
that her title? I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to link it in the mystical show notes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I think, I think librarians are that unsung hero caught in the middle between the, the two camps yeah. and they're, they're trying their best to bridge the two together. And you know, what will we do without those people? I don't know. We wouldn't be able to check out our books. Apparently. <laughs> just, kidding. Totally just kidding. They wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to figure out the difference between pedagogy and andragogy. Dun, dun, dun. Did I just feel a shift? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That was my chair <laughs> shifting. All right. And you're in Victoria and I finally. Uh, yeah. Well, we are in the, I'm at the tip of the, what's that? The, the Juan de Fuca. No, that's not it. What's that yeah. fault line through California? Oh, San Andreas. That's it. Yeah. It goes all the way up to San here. San Andreas fault. Yeah. Yes, it does. It's not my fault. Anyway. Um, but I'm it's not my fault. That was awful. Yeah, hey, I just flew in from Victoria, and boy, are my arms tired. Oh yeah, I'm here all week trying to lamb. <laughs> all right. Hey, okay. Diesel. What is the difference between pedagogy and andragogy? First, tell me what you found out to be pedagogy. What's the definition of pedagogy? Well, there's. I mean, pedagogy. When you actually get right into it, we talk about pedagogy as just being teaching, learning practices. Yeah. But. If we get into it, it actually is, and I'm trying to find the quote that I just had about it, but pedagogy is basically focusing more on peda, and I can't, it's the, um, it's a Greek term, and I can't remember what it means, but it basically means childlike, right? Right. And, yep. and so it's basically focusing on education, teaching practices for children. Right. And then andragogy, again, is Greek, but I think it's it's manlike, I think is mm-hmm. the, the actual translation from it. So it's an adult learner yeah. and how adults learn. And so I think there's a difference there. And now it's funny because I was at a meeting the other day where we're talking about some about pedagogy and one of the people in the meeting was like, you know, I'm just, it's not pedagogy. And he gets, he's like almost frustrated by it. He's like, it's actually andragogy that we're discussing here. Again, he's to be talking. I was like, so it's, it's been andragogy. Like, you just stop talking about pedagogy. <laughs> it's not pedagogy anymore. It's exactly andragogy. Oh, here we go. The term andragogy can be supposedly equivalent to the term pedagogy. Andragogy in Greek means man leading in comparison to pedagogy, which in Greek means child leading. However, it should be noted yeah. that the term pedagogy has been used since ancient Greek times. Yeah, well, because I mean, who was being taught in a formal setting? Right. It was always yeah. children, always children. Yeah. And, um, and, there, and it was always considered that when you're an adult, your education, your formal education ended and now your, your practical education started. Right. Yeah. And so if we were to break down the, the Greek in there, not that I'm a Greek scholar, although I did take Latin when I was in high school and I love Latin and I, and I do like the odd Greek word once in a while. Um, uh, Pita is child and Ago is guide. So you have mm. pedagogy, which means a guide for the children. And in the, the andragogy side, you have andra or andras, which is man-centered. And then the same thing, ago, guide. So you have the guide for men. And now men doesn't mean gender-specific men. It, men no. in this term means all of humankind. So right. that are parent or not parents, that are, that are adults. And so you mm. have this guiding the adult. And um, what else did you find? Well, it's fine. I find it interesting that the, the pedagogy has been around since ancient Greek times, whereas andragogy was first, it was first uh, termed in 1833 by a German educator, Alexander Kapp. Mm-hmm. So it's a relatively new term. 
when we start right. thinking about how pedagogy has been around for a very long time and andragogy has been mm-hmm. you know, here since uh, 1833 and then actually didn't even really get into it until Malcolm Knowles, right? He came yeah. up with his definition of andragogy and that was in the 80s. So you and I were alive, we were children, but we were alive when andragogy kind of first came onto the scene. Hey. So Does that make us old not, then? Does that make us old? No, it makes, us, it, makes it very young. Oh, good. I thought you were going to uh-huh. say it makes us relevant. I'm like, oh, that's good. Feel good now. Oh, we are relevant. Oh, we yeah, are completely yeah. relevant. I just keep stop messing around with my microphone. I keep messing around. And just yeah. I, I keep this? forgetting that this is being video recorded. And I'm like, hey, how you and, doing? And we've, we've been podcasting together for like three years, <laughs> and you have not yet learned not to touch your mic. <laughs> I can't help it. It's right there. <laughs> Plus, I have the TV on beside me, so it's not like an extra monitor. It's like actual TV, and I'm just. You know, yeah. I, I haven't watched TV forever, so I'm in a hotel room with TV. I just kind of, it doesn't even matter to me what the TV show is. It could be Wheel of Fortune and I'll watch it for four hours. You like my five-year-old and seven-year-old yeah, kids. That's why I don't have Netflix. Netflix. I don't have Netflix and Disney Plus. That is crack cocaine for TV, right? It just, yeah. that's, yeah. Sorry. Just did. Anyway, so I should probably turn the TV <laughs> off. Um <laughs> And it's, I don't even know, it's, it's just two people talking and it's got my attention. Anyway, so Andragogy, you're right. Uh, Malcolm Knowles, um, he wasn't the first guy to bring up the term, but he was kind of one that, that modernized it and streamlined it and made it accessible for people. Yeah. 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 And, um, and so when it, and, and that really, that really hits home for you and I, right? Because we don't, well, sometimes we say our students are like kids, but they're not really kids. They're adults. Um, yeah. So when we're looking at what we're doing and how we're practicing our craft, we're really talking about an andragogical application yeah. of what we're doing. Yes. And I think it might be useful. <clears throat> now. We found that chart, you and I both found that awesome chart on the difference between pedagogy and andragogy. Maybe we should read through that just to kind of give some context. Sure. So let me read I the first was, one. Yeah. Okay. Go so on the, on the PETA side, it says that the learner is dependent on the teacher and it's the teacher is the one who evaluates progress and assumes full responsibility for what's taught. Right. And on the andragogical side, it says the learner is depending on self that the method requires self-evaluation and direction and self takes responsibility for the process. So what do you think about that? I find that I, I almost want to challenge it a bit. In the sense that yeah, I agree that, you know, typically and traditionally the learner is dependent on the instructor in a pedagogical sense. And then andragogical, we, we tend to think of the learner as self-directed. Yeah. However, I would say that the way that our, the way that we've been taught to teach anyways, and the way that a lot of I've, I've seen done in higher education is we still have a pedagogy going on where it's, it's coming from the teacher and not from, not from the student themselves. Right. And, and so you've got that transactional. I think we talked about in the first part of the podcast, that transactional kind of banking system. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to teach our students how to be more self-directed that way. Cause they are, they're wanting to be fed the information they want to have. Okay. Just tell me what I need to know for the test. Right. And that's right, not self learning. Right. That's not self-directed. No. So what I want to, what I want to say is even in a pedagogical sense, shouldn't we maybe not be teaching our kids, our children, how to be more self-directed. And I, I get uh, it. I've got her in kindergarten. Yeah. And so right now she needs to be directed, right? She needs to be said, okay, yeah. okay, this is, this is today's letter. And this is, so, but then you can start to build because I've got a son in grade two now as well. 
And again, it's still the same thing, right? They're being taught. Whereas yeah. I think at that age, you can start to be, and it, there's, there's, they need to start thinking for themselves and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. learning how to learn. And I yep. think that's where andragogy really comes in is it's, it's not necessarily teaching subject matter, but it's teaching a mindset. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I follow you there. Cause I mean, I, my kids are, well, two of them are graduated and two of them are close. Mm-hmm. And so the critical thinking piece is massive, right? And so you're right that we have to kind of teach our kids how to think, because if we don't teach them how to think, somebody else is going to teach them how to think, right? So, you know, social media or the peer group or yeah, yeah, <clears throat> something else is going to teach them how to think, right? So I'm not sure if I would label that pedagogical or andragogical in the sense of the critical thinking piece. But what I would say is that the critical thinking piece is definitely a key to andragogical approaches. And I think andragogical approach in the way that that's laid out here with the learners dependent on self, like just experience wise, not all of our students are depending on themselves to get stuff done. No. And, and that, and the question begs now is that because the students we've had in front of us as, as apprentices, are they that way? Are they a product of the system? Or are they the system themselves? Right. Right. And so I, I would tend to think that they are a product of the system because, yeah. you know, if the system is, is, is predominantly a methodology of one way teaching, then there isn't going to be any opportunity to do any critical thinking or, or any higher form of thinking. If you subscribe to, you know, the, the, the Colby's, hierarchy or Maslow's hierarchy of needs or where how if you've subscribed to any of that educationally mm-hmm. then I'm not sure that labeling it as andragogy is going to be as important as it is saying we want them to learn this skill because now it can apply into their andragogical selves and, and I and here's a good example people who go for their GED right so yeah. adult basic education so if they're upgrading to get their certificate right so they're, they're in BC they're dogwood they're pretty motivated. Yeah. Right. And so they're depending on themselves to get it done to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Like they're mm-hmm. still depending on the, on the teacher to get them th- to expose them to material and stuff. But for me, it's almost like these two things are talking about intrinsic motivation in the sense yeah. that it, the learner, when it's, when the learner is dependent on the teacher, there's not a lot of intrinsic motivation, right? It's extrinsic. Like they, they yes. need that teacher to motivate them. Yeah. Whereas that other side of it, where on the andragogical side, where it says the learner is depending on self, to me, that means almost more intrinsic, where the teacher shows up and says, this is the material we need to cover. This is what I think the direction you should go in, but you have, you know, four or six options. Here's the end goal. Let's, let, let's see you get there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, totally. And I think, I think you're right. I think it is. I mean, it's a both end because I think in the beginning, we need to direct our students. Yeah. And even teaching adults as I do and adults being 18 year olds and up, I think there's sometimes where I have to provide direction, but then at other times I need to let go and I need to let them know why I'm letting go because they mm-hmm. need to learn how to be critical. They need to learn how to learn and, and to embrace lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And then to go on what you're saying about people going on for the GED or the dogwood, how many times have you heard the story about, oh, I used to get C minuses in high school, but then when I yeah. got to university, suddenly I'm a straight A student because I found something that resonated with me 
Mm-hmm. And now I can go on and it's just, it's intrinsic again. So it's the extrinsic versus intrinsic debate, which is always ongoing. Sure. I think you need to have a little bit of both, but we do need to teach our students, whether they're children or adults, how to, how to construct their own meaning out of this. And how, basically how to, and that's where that constructivist lens comes in, right? Like, right. We all come in, it goes into the next, the role of the learner's experience, which is the next part of that chart that we've got mm-hmm. about how it says here for pedagogy, pedagogical it says the learner comes with act to the activity with little experience that can be tapped as a resource for learning the experience of the instructor is most influential and then for andragogical the learner brings a great volume and quality of experience adults are a rich resource for one another different experiences assure diversity in groups of adults experiences become the source of self-identity and i agree i totally agree with that but i think we are doing our children a disservice thinking they have no experience because there are a lot of kids out there that have a lot of life experience that I don't even know how these kids go about their days. Like there's such wisdom in some of these children and everything that they've gone through. Yeah. So that's where I would push back on that. But I do agree with the andragogical and I see that and you've seen it too. When we, in our business classes, when we get them into the groups and we, and we basically let them go off on their experiences, instead of you and I lecturing, Mm -hmm. you have our students kind of teaching themselves and sharing. And when, when would you say is the most rich class you've ever taught? And for me, it's when that happens, when I get them in these groups and we have these vibrant discussions based off of life experience. Yeah, there's no doubt that that when they start sharing their life experience, not only in the small groups, but when they come back together as a large class and we start breaking down what they've talked about or we start communicating in a, in a larger group, some of the answers that they've come up with or some of the strategies that they've come up with, there's no doubt. There's no comparison. Like that. Yep. That's it's hands down way, way better. And I even find myself in my own practice shutting myself down when I feel too luxury, yep. and and getting them into groups to talk about what we just what they just heard, and then coming back yep. for a dissemination afterwards. Because you know, it, yeah, they 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 come to class with so much life experience. I think, I think maybe one of the things that, that I look at what I do in the classroom is I, is I try to couple their life experience with the content, Mm -hmm. right? And because for me, there's something powerful there that when they can see the content in context to their life, it makes a hundred times more sense and they remember it easier. Yeah. Right. And and it, it, that's going to lead into another one of those boxes. But, you know, you, you hit on something there where I think they come in not knowing how much they really know yes. and not knowing how much it really connects. And yeah. so if we show up and just dump our bucket into their pail, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not really helping the process much. No, I don't yeah, and shouldn't just, it be our job as educators to facilitate? And I love how you're saying they take the content to the context, right? And so let them to under, have them understand why this is important and what, where, how you can tie it into their own meaning. And I don't care if it's a child or an adult, like how do you, how do you make that connection? And I think that's where good educators, a good educator can make that connection with their students through and storytelling is big right now. Right. So like the yep. reason why storytelling is so big in education is because we're, we're adding context to what we're teaching. Yeah. And it helps make those connections. Oh, for sure. And and you even look at what we've done as trades instructors, where we know some of the best trades instructors are those that are able to weave their story, their experience out in the field with the content that they're trying to teach. Yeah. Um, totally. Because you and I both know brilliant instructors that 
lack some of that life experience mm-hmm. uh, out in the field, but they're, they know the content in and out. Yep. So they've had to make strides to cover the gap in the, in the experience part of it. And, and some of them are doing a really good job at that. But I often find that instructors who tend to be able to hit it home time and time and time again, is that they're able to make the connection between content and context. Yes. And, and that's the three C's for me. So it's content, context, and concept. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, that, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Which gets us to the readiness to learn. It's funny how these are all tying one point into the next. <laughs> Again, pedagogical students are told what they have to learn in order to advance to the next level of mastery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to know that. And that's where we, we run into the problem. And I'm going to probably push back on every one of these points. But by the time we get students coming to us as adult learners, they always want to know, well, do I need to know this for the test? Right. So if we're trying to advance them to the next level of mastery, well, how do they get to that next level? How do they assess that? Well, they pass the test. And so it becomes too focused on the assessment and the test as opposed to making meaning out of it. Yeah. And I guess it would actually try and debate or, or have a conversation around, are we teaching for competency or mastery? Well, how would you differentiate the two? Well, competency means... I understand the concept and I can apply it in different situations. Mastery means I've mastered this particular skill. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe and so I'm you can lo- use it. In- maybe I'm just looking at it too much like a tradesperson right now. But um, if, if, if mastery to me means repetition. You do this, 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 do this sheet, do this sheet, do this sheet, do this sheet. Whereas competency to me means you understand the concept so well that it doesn't matter what the question is. You can always twist the question into the, into the concept to get the right answer. Right. right. And so I'll give you an example. My son, it drives me crazy because he's just so brilliant. Not that it drives me crazy that he's smart, but he doesn't read textbooks. Like mm. he's, he's in his last semester and his last year at Douglas. And I'm, I am not using hyperbole when I say that he has not read more than five textbooks in all the courses that he's taken. And, and I was sitting down with him over, over pizza one night. And I was just saying to him, like, how do you do that? Like, like what, like, I just don't get it. Like you, you just get it and you just move on. And he's, and he's just looking at me like I'm from Mars. He's like, well, yeah, what is my, isn't that what everybody does? And I'm like, no, that's not what everybody does. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, it's really, it's really important to me that you understand the concepts more than just the content because you know, we can memorize stuff really well for the short term, but yeah. Um, when six months from now, when you leave that class, are you still going to remember the stuff that you learned there? And he told me of a story where he was in this, in this, um, biomechanics class and, uh, and it's a pretty high level class. Like it's, it's five credits. So they do a, they do a lecture and then they do a lab and he was given this pretty complex formula to figure something out. But he didn't study the formula because guess what? He didn't read the textbook. (laughs) (laughs) But but he understood enough of the concept that he started breaking down the equation and going, well, okay, well, this might mean this and this might mean that and this could mean this. And he just starts Mm -hmm. fiddling around with his calculator and putting numbers in and jostling stuff around. And then, boom, he gets the answer. Got it. Right? Yeah. 
And I, that's what I mean by competency is that mm-hmm. you're not mastering how to use something or you're not mastering, you know, times and date stamps and names and, and you know, this rote memory stuff. You're, you're getting so familiar with the concept that it, you'll get a question that you don't even think you can answer at first. But if yeah. you start thinking your way through it, bingo, it comes to yeah. you. And, and, you know, and it's not that he got lucky. He just, he just applied the knowledge that he had and kind of figured stuff out and off he went. So yes. that's what I mean by competency versus mastery. Gotcha. And um, I know in, in, in the near future, we're going to have Sally Vinden on and we're going to talk more about andragogy and pedagogy because I know that this is something that's, that's come on her radar quite a bit because she runs into this a lot in the instructors mm-hmm. that she's rubbing shoulders with. But for, in my context, like in, in my organizational behavior classes now, it's all about concept. Like I don't care if you can remember, you know, what a diagram looks like. I, d- I don't care if you can remember a definition verbatim. Like I really don't care. Right. But what I do right. care is can you apply the theory in a context? Yes. So for me, that's yeah, and that's important. So, so it is important to understand the theory because you can't play with a the theory unless you understand it. Right. It's like no. a musician. Like you can't like a, a jazz musician, a jazz guitarist cannot do these crazy, amazing solos unless mm. he practices scale. So they understand how to run it up and down the neck. Right. Oh, for sure. But then for once sure. they have that, that basics and they, they, then they can go buck wild in the context of it and do yeah. so much more with it. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, you and I are both musicians, right? I mean, I'm not as a big musician as some other people, but, um, but there's, there's fundamentals that we have to learn. Like even on a drum kit, there's fundamentals that I do to warm up, right? There's, there's doublets, right. there's triplets, there's quadruplets. There's different, there's different time signatures. I mean, there's different things that I do to warm up. Um, but it doesn't mean that I've mastered my drum kit. And you look right. at any, look at any music genre out there and I'll just pick jazz because it's, it's kind of easy to, to talk about it in this way. But those guys who are masters, like they never called themselves that. Mm. right they never no, called themselves masters not. they called themselves students yep because even even at their level where everybody else was calling them a master of what they were doing and they've been playing for 30 40 sometimes 50 years mm-hmm. even they were still going back to the fundamentals and doing their chords and doing their their rudiments and, and doing all that stuff but it, you're right because of that now it gave them the freedom to start their journey, man, and just start here and just go wherever the music wants to take you. And then pretty soon you end yeah. up back where you started, man. And it's all a great thing. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, that's, that's what I mean. So yeah, yeah, you absolutely have to know what you're talking about, but that's not ma- the mastery I'm talking about. The mastery I'm talking about is just that, that repetition of, Oh, you didn't understand that math problem. Well, here's another math problem then. Yeah. Right? I was actually listening to podcast startup podcast by, um, Gimlet Media and they they kind of followed these different companies that start up, hence the name. One of their seasons focused on the Success Academy. It's this a charter school in New York. And basically what they did was is through repetition, they would go into inner city neighborhoods, open these charter schools, and then just focus on these the standardized tests that they would have to take in grade three and four and five, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And just the whole thing was to prepare these kids for the test. And all they would do is test prep, test prep, test prep, and they would learn how to do um, multiple choice. Like it's 
you take out the trash so you get rid of the two you know how we've mm-hmm. taken assessment courses so you have two in there that are completely useless and then you have the, the magic maybe they call it so all these mm-hmm. kids when they're in like kindergarten are learning about how to take a test at the end of the day are they learning anything not re- they're getting really good at taking tests yeah, they're getting exactly. really good at, at yeah. able to read into a test and find out what people are looking for mm-hmm. but are they actually getting context and are they getting the competency no they're getting mastery for sure they, these students are amazing at tests now and but in their own context would they be able to do anything with that maybe yeah. yes maybe no some yeah. yes some no but still i think yeah. there's much more to it than just becoming amazing at writing tests yeah and, and i think that's one of the great things about the, the crowd that that we're we're watching and, and interacting with and and given the privilege to be a part of is that standardized testing is just it's almost it's almost like you know drinking vinegar you don't want to do it right yeah and you know yeah. you have to to a certain degree but you if you had your choice you would not do it because you know yeah. that it's broken it's a broken system mm-hmm. and yeah you know it, it, and it's it's no secret that multiple choice is the lowest form of exam uh, assessments that you can ever have. But we, yeah. we, we use them so much because one, they're easy to make and two, they're easy to mark. Yeah. We don't even have to mark them. Nowadays, yeah. the LMS does it for us or well, before sure. we had the Scantron. Sure. And, and to a certain degree, the LMS has, I think, has encouraged people to go down the route of multiple choice because guess what? You don't have to mark it. The machine marks it and off you go. And, uh, like I'm the bane of my existence is writing papers with short answers. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, I'm not the only one, so I'm not going to complain, but, um, yeah, good points. Really good points. Let's do one more. Cause we don't want to steal sure. Sally's Sally's fire entirely, but let's do one more. No. Okay. You pick the, the last one then. So I, I, this one, I think falls in again, into your category a tiny bit. That one thing that I've always been kind of in awe of when you talk about this, because again, I, I just haven't been able to wrap my head around this part yet, but in the pedagogy camp, they would say that learning is prescribed by the instructor and sequenced in a way that makes logical sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the andragogy circles, they would say that learning is prescribed by the self where the learner see a problem or knowledge gap and organize topics around life and work solutions. Yeah. Right. And I hear you talking about that all the time in the sense that, okay, so gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here's a problem. Get in your table groups, figure it out. Do it. Just do it. Nothing is impossible. What are you waiting for? Do it. Yes, you can do it. Stop giving up. Nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible. Do it. Do it. Do it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and it's amazing what they can do. They, you, and I say this all the time is our students are capable of greatness. So we should give them a space where they can start showing that. Yeah. And that's what I started really embracing this whole problem based learning. When I, d- I learned a little bit about co-creation and then started giving them these slide decks that had nothing but headings in it. And said, okay, yeah. write your own textbook. Yeah. And so that blew the, the door open. And then when I get to the practical side, cause I teach trades mm-hmm. is I would give them drawings and say, okay, I want you to go ahead and wire this up. And I want, you've got all day to do it. And then we're, we're going to take a look at it at the end of the day. Right. And it's amazing. Again, when you get a group of four of these trade students together, it's mm-hmm. amazing what they can accomplish together. And yeah, I had to teach them some of the basics for sure. I had to teach them how to use their tools. I had to teach them how to strip wire. I had to teach them 
how circuits work. Mm-hmm. But then you can take that and they don't really cement it in until they actually started doing these things on their own. And then they're starting to solve complex problems that journey people can't even figure out or forget right. how to do. That's yeah. the thing. And these are students that have never worked a day out in the field. Yeah. So students that are about four months into a six month course and before they even started this, they have no idea what a Phillips head is versus a slot head versus a Robertson right. or a Torx screwdriver. And maybe some people listening to this podcast don't know, but they better know they, the Robinson one if they're Canadian. Yeah, they better. It's the only one worth having. But that's a whole other, that'll be on another debate, the pedagogy of screwdrivers. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it's not yes, a torque, I, it's a Robbie, baby. Yeah, that's right. But you can get me out. I'm going to get off my soapbox now because I get amped about that. But I just, I think we do not give our students enough credit and we need to give them the space to start using the knowledge we gave them and to use it in interesting and creative ways. And yeah. We can start to see the magic happen. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know I've, well, I've been, I've been a part of some interesting conversations slash heated conversations about this very thing in the sense that some instructors have said to me, they, they don't know what they know and they need me to tell them what they're supposed to know and how they're supposed to learn it so that they can get ready to write an exam. Cause at the end of the program, they're, they're passing an exam. I'm yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, okay. I get the passing exam part. We can't escape that. Like that's, that's a definite gate that they have to walk through. Mm-hmm. However, there are a significant number of students in that classroom who fit this idea that, you know, I don't, I don't need you to bark at me for four and a half, five or six hours a day because I already know this stuff. Right. Right. And if it's, yeah. and if it's just about an exam, let me write the stupid exam and let me go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you, and you see that happen all the time, especially now with online stuff, right? Oh. Because we, in LMSs, I ran into that last year when they transferred everything over to an LMS and wanted us to teach just strictly off the LMS with oh. quiz banks and everything built. And then some of my students would rip through it and they'd be like, can I just go? And then yeah. I'd look at hundred percent. I'd be, I have to, I'd have to say, well, I guess so. Cause there's oh, nothing yeah. else I can, I can let you do here until yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. And I can release the next quiz bank to you. Yeah. And so, and, and it kind of circles back into what I, th- what I think part of my role is as a, as a, as an educator or as a facilitator in the sense is that on the trade side, it's not just about learning the content and passing the exam, but I also want you to know how to work with people. Like I want you to learn how to help those who don't know what they're doing. And I also want you to grow in your leadership skills. Yeah. And so that idea of turning them back into the system and saying, okay, well, that's great. You know how to do this. That's awesome. Now go help that person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, exactly. sh- and show them, not only show them what to do, but let them do it and, yep. and teach them how to correct themselves. And so nine times out of 10, it actually works and it works beautifully when they do that. But this whole idea of letting the learner decide for themselves what they should learn in your class that's a scary thing, man. That's a scary thing. It is a scary and it gets messy. Then you talked about it the first part of the podcast about how you like to have those definitions, right? And I was right there with you as far as I like to have my lesson plans all played out. But when you bring the students into this and they're the ones deciding, things get really messy really quickly. And sometimes it clicks. And honestly, like I talk a lot about my success stories and maybe I need to start talking a little bit more about the times that it just fell with a dead, dead thud on the floor, right? <laughs> And there's, been, there's been a few of those along the way. Everybody gets to bring a case lot of Costco Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we, but that's the thing, right? We have to, 
if we want our students to be better people in the end, we've got to provide them places where they can practice to be better people. And I think like you just like you hit the nail on the head then when you said, yes, they have to pass a test at the end of the day. Yeah, they do. I get that. They have to get the assessment. But at the end of the day, I'd rather have my students get 70% on that test and get like unquantifiable, be a, a good person and, and to be a good leader and to learn how to, or learn how to troubleshoot. And troubleshooting is not just like, I understand how this plumbing system works or this electrical system works, it's being able to think critically. So in any context they're in, I don't care, like the stuff that I learned about troubleshooting throughout my trade is translated into my master's program, translated into my academic endeavors, is translated into my friendships. Like all this stuff is, is just, it's not just that one context, it's a broad context of life. And I think sure. at the end of this, whether it's andragogy or pedagogy, we are trying to teach our students how to be better people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can't escape that. And I think that's, that's, that should be, although you can't quantify it in some magical test way, but I think it has to be a, a piece of what we do, no matter what class you're, you're teaching, but that only comes from a strong philosophy of education or a strong philosophy of what you're doing anyway. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah. and, you, and it goes back to our, our, you have to understand how these theories work in order to play in the sandbox. Like it's not yeah. just all letting the kids run the classroom and you're just sitting at your desk. There's a lot yeah. of work that goes into doing all this. Yeah. But you have I, to have the frameworks. Yeah, exactly. And I'm the last person to stand up and start talking about all these, the, these, these theories, because I mean, I, uh, and some of them I'm dipping my toe into them for the first time or the second or third time. And some of them I've been living for 10 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to say that I've figured it all out. And I, and I hope that that's come across in our podcast here tonight um, because we're all still learning. It's all about practicing to get better, right? Yeah. That's why they call it the practice of teaching, right? That's why we call it practice pedagogy. That's why. Yes. <laughs> and, and then we could have the credits roll right now. Yeah, do, do, Let's drop that you. mic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there we that's go. why we call it Praxis Pedagogy. That's right. That's right. So this would be a good time to say thanks for listening, everybody. And yeah. thanks for watching. And um, we are by no means done with this topic. Because like I said, Sally Vinden will be coming on shortly. I'm excited uh, for that one. She's, I mean, she's a friend of ours. So yeah, it's awesome. But she just, she's passionate about the same things we're passionate about. And she's just mm-hmm. Like she's a lot of fun and she actually and well actually she actually comes from london well not london but she comes from england right <laughs> that's possibly the worst english <laughs> accent i've ever heard yeah well sally's very forgiving she's very gracious so we'll let that yes. go um I, and i did listen to her on another podcast and somebody did that to her they said so whenever, oh, did they, they? whenever they find out your english do they talk to you in an english accent then pip, pip, governor that's right and she, you just hear her go yeah it's all good anyway so salad is coming on how do people find you on social media i'm guessing it's probably through the twitterverse yeah that's the only place you'll find me now i have stripped down all social media i am not on facebook i still have the account but i'm not using facebook not even using instagram Mm. not using well i use linkedin but i'm very there very rarely i have it so the best place to find me contact me poke fun at me <coughs> getting all emotional now is uh is twitter and it's at praxis pedagogy what about you i am on instagram so you can find me at flinnegan so it's f-l-i-n-n-a-g-i-n so i'm on there but that's mostly my personal account so if you want to see pictures of cute kids and every once in a while i'll, I'll give a little instagram straight to my class right uh, i'm most active on twitter for sure so that's mm-hmm. at chad h flynn and um, 
get into a lot of great discussions there. And you can get me on Snapchat actually too, Chad Flynn on Snapchat. Oh yeah, I don't. I'm I'm off Snap. I'm off the Snap. Are you? Yep. I mean, I just got back into it. My students all use it, and so I, they've been. That's how they like to communicate with me. So I tried to yeah, set up a Slack enough. channel, didn't yeah. work, and now they're all snapping me. So. Well, yeah, I'm just old school. Email me. Yeah, there you email go. me. So yeah, you can email me too. You can email me at tcarson at bccampus.ca or burnt bean juice all one word burnt bean juice at gmail.com burnt bean juice is a is a another way of saying coffee I love it coffee i love it, love it too much but you know, that's one thing i will not be cutting down on <laughs> or maybe it could be rotten barley well, well <laughs> yes rotting barley yeah rotting yeah. Barley. That sounds so one. appetizing <laughs> no it's, it's burnt mm. bean juice yeah anyway there we go so anyway thanks for listening and uh, we hope you enjoyed it and uh This is uh, Tim signing out. Chad signing out. And don't forget to leave us a review if you're on any of the places that you're listening to us on. iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, uh, all that fun stuff. Just please do us a favor. Get the reviews out there. It helps us get noticed a little bit more. And it just makes us feel warm and fuzzy about ourselves. Well, and I guess the word out. Yep. Because we all want to get better at what we practice, right? Totes. Totes. Like that? How we wove that back in? Yeah. Praxis pedagogy. Pick you. Pick you. All right. <laughs> Done. Out. Oh